Thank you, William. Good morning, friends. Have a seat. It is so good to be with you guys. Um, if, you, if you've already closed it, open it again. We're, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, the first passage that Will read. And as you guys turn back there, I just want to say I have really good news, really good news. It is shocking. It is surprising. Uh, it's world-altering. But I'm going to warn you, it's complicated. Genuinely so, okay? And so you're going to need to lean in for about the next 20 minutes and then for the rest of your life, okay? Um, what we're going to discuss this morning from Ephesians 4, it might stretch you. It might, it might chafe some of you. But it's going to matter tomorrow at work and next Sunday at church, and for like the next 10 billion years, okay? So when you, you may have made it there to Ephesians 4. Here's the good news. God always accomplishes his purposes, always. There's not one thing that he has determined to do that will not come to pass. Everything that he has decreed in his wisdom will be accomplished, and there's actually an end game and we are driving toward it. But getting there will be a messy process. Things are messy right now. Have you, have you noticed that? Has anybody noticed that life is just a little bit chaotic right now? I mean, all of it. What a crazy time. But all of the chaos and all of the wisdom and all of the folly and all of the good and the bad things that are happening around us is, in fact, in some way, moving us towards God's final vision for the world. And at the center of that final vision is a multi-ethnic community of people. It's on your screen. Living holy lives in adoration of him. A multi-ethnic community of people living holy lives in adoration of him. That right there is what he died to make. And that is what everything is trending towards. Although, I will have to admit, and I think you probably would as well, at the present moment, we're pretty far from that. There are pockets where it's happening, and there are places, lots of places, where parts of it are happening. But that vision, the end game that's described toward the end chapter in Ephesians 4, where we, all, we quote, all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that is still yet to come. That's not what we look like yet, but we will. We will. And we just need to kind of strap in because the road from here to there is going to be a little bit rough, and it already is. It's a little bit like this. And in fact, I hope it's a very little bit like this, but some of you might be familiar with um, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. It's one of the great speeches in American history. It's etched into the stone at the Lincoln Memorial. It's the kind of thing that you know kids memorize in like fifth grade and whatnot. And it's a fantastic speech. Um, it is chiefly a treatise on the Civil War, which was coming to an end at the time that he gave it. The Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation had happened two years before the speech, uh, but Lee's surrender was about just a little under a month away when, when Lincoln was inaugurated and he gave the speech. And in it, he reflects on the war and the same two things that we're talking about this morning. Number one, that God's purposes come to pass. And number two, it's very often through messy, painful means. Here's what Lincoln said. The Almighty has his own purposes. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but 
which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, then as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln was right. That which God wills happens like the end of slavery. But sometimes it happens in very complex and painful ways like a civil war. And I want to suggest to you that if we're going to make sense of what is happening right now, what God is doing, especially in a time as chaotic and painful as this one, then we need to understand what it is that he wills. And before I go any further, I need to shrink the meaning of we from the whole world down to the church, okay? The whole, it would be great if the whole world figured this out too, but we have less to say about that. We, the world, are kind of a wreck right now. We, the church, are supposed to be the solution to it. And if we, the church, are to be a solution, then we really need to understand at a deep level what it is that he has called us to be and to do. The body of Christ is supposed to be a vision, a sample, a, a, a foretaste, a sneak peek of God's ultimate end of the world. We are supposed to be in anticipation of the future. We are, right now, supposed to be what God intends to be forever and ever. We are to be, as I said, a multi-ethnic community of people living holy lives in adoration of him. And the world will do what it does with whatever consequences follow. But we, you guys, we are to follow him. We are to love him. We're to love what he loves and to bring about his purposes. And the world should look over the fence at us and say, how do they do that? How do they love each other so well? And I cannot think of a better book in all of scripture for this moment in time when God led Quig to choose to teach Ephesians in this season, there was some Holy Spirit magic going on right there. This is the book, all right? And we've been at it for four weeks. And today we get to the great hinge of the book. We're in Ephesians 4, and Ephesians 4 verse 1 is the pivot of the book, okay? Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about what God has been doing. It's all theology, all these things. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, these are all these great deep truths. This is what God is doing. It's why he's done it. It's to what end. This is what he had in mind. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about what do we do? In light of all this, Okay, what do I do today? What is this? How does this matter? It's all the application, right? So it's good thinking leads to good doing. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. And Ephesians 4.1 is that, that flip, that if we grasped this, if we saw it, if it penetrated us, if it awed us, if it filled us with hope and wonder and love, if it challenged us and it corrected us, well, then how would we be different tomorrow? That's Ephesians 4.1. This is the great thing. Listen to what he says. I'll read it again. Although, Will, you did a fine job reading it the first time. Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. As he's getting down to what it is that we are to do, he recaps what God has already done and why he's done it. But in case you missed it, if all the ones and all the alls don't ring a bell, let me show you, let me show it to you again, okay? Ephesians is all about one thing. Everything else in this whole book contributes to this single idea that God has determined to reconcile to himself one body out of diverse people, right? The primary groups he has in view are the Jews and the Gentiles between whom there is disrespect and suspicion, feelings of superiority and scorn. There's a history of oppression and abuse, of exclusion and mistreatment. Guys, there's nothing new under the sun. This is a very, very old story. But God's plan is to reconcile them to himself and get this to each other, right? The plan is to draw members from every people group who would form this new, diverse, multi-ethnic body who naturally had not loved each other, but that he would love them so thoroughly that number one, they would love him back, and number two, they would love each other. Their differences would become a cause for celebration, not suspicion. Each one would consider the needs of the other as more important than their own. That radical, self-sacrificial love under King Jesus would be the norm. If not in the world, right here with us in the church of God. Right? This is on every page of Ephesians. Just listen, I'll just do a real quick recap how often this theme of making one unified body reconciled to God, how it comes up. Chapter 1, verse 10, his plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things, unite all things in him things in heaven and on earth. Chapter two, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Chapter three, this mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, which, which Brian looked at with us last week, Paul's opening salvo was, for this reason, I'm on my knees interceding, asking God to give you a supernatural ability to love. What's the reason? Why is this so hard? Why is it crucial that we understand the breadth and the depth and the supernatural nature of God's love? It's because it's going to be hard, super, super hard. We are called to radically love people that are different than we are. And they are being asked to love us, which is just as hard. And so Paul says, y'all are gonna need some serious help. I am on my knees begging that God will give you the grace to understand how much he loves you because if you don't, we're dead in the water. There is no way to love the way we're called to love if we don't experience that love first. So having spent three chapters building the case, 
Paul finally gets down to, so what do we do? What does this actually mean? He says, listen to me, God has a plan. This is the plan. This body right here, this community is going to boggle the world's mind because they've never seen anything like it. It's a community that loves across ethnic and cultural and socioeconomic lines, but it's going to be hard, so here's what I need you to do. Listen, verse 2. If we're going to pull this off, we are going to be a people who love despite our differences, and that is going to require humility. Because when people do things differently than you do them, sometimes it looks really stupid to you. Every culture judges every other culture by its own standards, which necessarily puts the other cultures at a disadvantage. If we're going to love well, we need to humbly assume that the people that are different than us have something to teach us. If our lives aren't marked by humility, this is not going to work. Number two, our lives need to be marked by gentleness and patience. And I, I need to confess, if you haven't noticed it already, I think patience is tough. I am specifically an incredibly impatient man. I hate patience. I hate it when patience is required of me. I do not want to take the time to wait for you to figure out what I already know. And I don't want to take the time to think about this from your perspective, to consider what you've experienced, what led you to these. I mean, what a nightmare to spend all that time. I don't want to do it. But if we're going to ever achieve the vision for which God created the world, it's going to take some serious patience. Not just that, but we're going to need to bear with one another in love. Is there anybody in this entire room that likes bearing with people? If you knew you're going on a four-hour drive this afternoon and you had to bear with someone the entire time, would you get in the car? Nobody wants to do this. These are, he's saying, he's warning us, guys, it's going to be hard. It's going to challenge your thinking. And by the way, it's not just people of different ethnicities that have to bear with one another, but like within the same car, within like twin siblings have to bear with each other, okay? It's going to be difficult. And all the while, all the while, take a look at verse 3. Check this one out. Verse 3 says, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain, how does that go? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Next time you're posting on Facebook, okay, just run, run it through this grid. Are you thinking that these words that you're typing, are they going to help us maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Are we eager, you guys? Are we leaning in? Are we celebrating every time we're successful? That there were natural differences. I saw this differently than you saw, but I slowed the thing down. I stopped and I listened and I sought to understand as much as I loved to be understood. When I did that, do I celebrate the successes? Do we grieve the failures when we blow it? Are we really excited when we get better at this? When I have a conversation with somebody whose background and culture are different than mine and something clicks, I read a book, I'm following something, and suddenly I'm like, oh, I get it. I didn't used to get it. I didn't understand what you understood. I didn't experience what you experienced, but I get it. And that's why you think, that's why you responded the way you did. That makes sense to me now. Do we celebrate those things? Are we eager for those? I couldn't see it before until you helped me see it. Are we eager 
to have those kind of breakthroughs. You guys, this is God's purpose. This is what Ephesians is all about. One new man out of the two. The end game, the final part of the story is a multi-ethnic community of people living holy lives in adoration of him. And the good news is, as I said, that God's purposes will come to pass. He will have his diverse, unified body. The complicated part is it's going to be messy, and it's messy right now. This is a tough moment. Talk about overlying griefs, right? It is a tricky time. But do you know, it used to be a whole lot worse. Like, really, genuinely, a whole lot worse it used to be actually perfectly legal to buy and sell human beings. Race-based chattel slavery is over. And we celebrate that. We should celebrate. We just celebrated the end of it on Juneteenth. And we should. It was an absolutely gargantuan turning point in our history. And we should celebrate and praise God for it. Sharecropping, which followed closely on the heels of slavery, that's also over, although it continued longer than you might suspect. The Jim Crow era is over. These are all good things, things that we have done away with, that we should, we have, or at least very should have repented of. And by the way, if you don't have a quick sense of what those things, you got some vague idea of you know, sharecropping and the misery of that and the injustice of that. If you don't, that's okay. We all have gaps in our understanding of history. I certainly do, right? There's vast things that I know absolutely nothing about, and I will probably never know anything at all about the history of Bolivia. But I am an American, and so it makes sense to know the history of my own country. And if there are gaps in your understanding of what has happened from the first day to this day, the easy thing is to read a book, right? And there's lots of great books that we can read to kind of flesh this thing out and understand where have we as a nation and where have we as a church failed to pursue God's ultimate goal of a multi-ethnic community of people living holy lives in adoration of him. Kelly and I have read a number of books over the last several years on, these, on this topic, on our, on our history, that have been really helpful. I'm just going to mention a handful of them to you really quickly. This is a great book, 12 Years a Slave. It's a memoir, Solomon Northrup who was born free in New York in like the, you know, 1800s, but was uh, sold into slavery, captured, kidnapped, illegitimately sold into slavery and spent a dozen years in slavery. It's a fantastic book. I recommend it to you. The Burning, a friend of mine recommended this to me about, oh gosh, seven or eight years ago. And he said, hey, have you ever heard about the, uh, the time that we completely destroyed a, a community, like the largest, most prosperous black community in America was burned to the ground? And I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. He's like, you should read this book. And so I did. The Burning, about Tulsa, Oklahoma. Greenwood is the particular community. It is worth reading. I'd never heard of it, but I should have. And I think it'd be profitable if you had too. The Help, many of you may have seen this as a film. This is a fictional story, but fiction tells the truth. Have you ever noticed that? It's a fantastic book. I, read the, I didn't see the movie, but I read the book um, about the injustices of the world, about a maid in the, set in the 60s. The Warmth of Other Suns is another book that I had, about which I knew nothing. It says, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration, to which I thought, I did not know America had a great migration. It is about a massive transfer of black people from the racist south to the racist north. And it was eye-opening for me to read. I recommend that to you. Do I have one more? Just Mercy. This is out right now in a film. I have not see, read this book. I watched the movie. Kelly read the book and was deeply impacted by it. 
just the profound injustice of it. Uh, I think that would be, the movie was great, but as always is the case, I think the book is probably more penetrating. Because these have been very helpful to Kelly and I, and there, I'm sure there are countless other books that we haven't read, and perhaps some that you have read that have been meaningful. All of these particular chapters of these books are behind us, and it really is true that things are better than they've ever been. And yet, does anybody in this room or anybody that's watching us online really think that we are living out Ephesians right now? Have we arrived? Forget the world. Just don't worry about them. Just think about us. Is the church functioning as a multi-ethnic community of people living holy lives in adoration of him? Have we done it? Are we as a church, are we presently walking worthy of the calling to which we've been called? I would suggest that we aren't. We're far from the mark. And Jesus once said that if the, if, the, if the people didn't worship him, the rocks would cry out. When God's people don't do what they're supposed to do, he still accomplishes his purposes. It's just a whole lot messier. There is an incredible amount of folly happening in the world today. Very unwise and unkind things are being said. Very poor decisions are being made. Unjust reactions are following. And it's just a mess but I would like to suggest to you something that many of you will not like at all. And if so, just, you can write me directly, Tim at chsroanoke.com. Leave Quig alone. He's got plenty to worry about. Matthew, you can use Matthew 18 and just come straight to me. A lot of the mess, you guys, a lot of it's on us. Not because we're doing every awful thing, although we have done some awful things, but it's on us because we are the ones who know God's intentions. We are the church. We've known this for thousands of years. The world does not know. They have no idea how to create multi-ethnic communities of people live holy lives and, and adore him. Why would they? This is our job. We have been called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We are the ones who know there's one body and that we've been called to one hope we have one Father who is the Father of all. And I would submit to you that in the last, you know, whatever it is, 300 years of the American church at least, I don't think we've done a stellar job of this. And important, some very important ways we have failed significantly. And therefore, I think it is good to see this moment as a moment of grace. It is a wake-up call to the church from God to live out our calling not to imitate the world, not to join them in their foolishness, but to get ahead of it. We should be leading, we should have been leading the charge for justice in a world filled with injustice to show what God meant all along, that we would not just grow in our vertical reconciliation, but in our horizontal reconciliation. And so I'd like to propose that we study, we continue, we lean in to study Jesus the one who loves us and who loves us across enormous gaps, right? From his holiness to our sinfulness, his wisdom to our folly, his strength to our weakness until a deeper experience of that love compels us to love across ethnic and cultural divides to his glory and our joy. Lord Jesus, give us the grace to be what you've called us to be. We love you. Amen.